Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Just Work Podcast. I am Kim Scott, and I'm the author of the book and the co-host of the podcast with Wesley. Yes, this podcast specifically, welcome to the Just Work Podcast. My name is Wesley Faulkner. I am Kim's co-host. I have not written any books just yet, but hopefully in the future. Mm -hmm. And today we are with Krista, uh, who I will let her introduce herself. Well, I am Krista Quarles, currently the CEO of a company called Aludo, because we enable all you do. Uh, see what we did there, uh, which is a um, we really sell you know knowledge worker software. Uh, we're backed by KKR, uh, so I'm in the private equity space. And before Aludo, I was the CEO of OpenTable. Uh, and spent some time trying to evolve and transform that business. So I've gotten deep into some of these transformational stories and really had a very nonlinear career before that. I, I started my life out on Wall Street, learned some good and bad lessons about culture. I saw a lot of obnoxious aggression uh, <laughs> in, in my Wall Street days. And but was living, you know, moved to Silicon Valley in the year 2000, so .com 1.0, and just saw a lot of really interesting things inside of companies. Felt like I was outside the company world and needed to get into it. And so I went to a company called Playdom, which was a gaming startup. We sold that to Disney, uh, and thus really began a chunk of my operating career. So have been in a lot of different kinds of organizations, everything from direct to consumer to B2B, B2B to C, uh, have seen a lot. And that nonlinearity, though, I think helps me solve problems in a different way and approach the far analogy of how to navigate. Um, and met Kim a long time ago and, and just thrilled to be on the podcast, thrilled to be here with you guys today and thrilled to, to navigate some, some interesting topics. Yeah, thank you so much. Krista, you and I met when I gave one of the first radical candor, public radical candor talks that I ever gave, and you were incredibly supportive. Uh, so thank you for that. And then I worked with you and your team at OpenTable to, to roll out some of the ideas, which was fun. We talked at South By. Uh, when was that? Ages ago. A long time ago. Yeah, a, long, <laughs> a long time ago. 2016, I think. And then when I started writing Just Work, you had one of the stories that was most inspiring about how we can make change and make it quickly. And I put that into the book. So I thought I'd read that. I thought I'd read it. And, and then we could talk about it. How's that sound? That sounds great. All right. So this, this, is, this part of the book is called Krista Quarles at Open Table. When she was, I feel silly reading this out loud to you, but anyway, I'm going to get over it. When she was CEO of OpenTable, Krista Quarles made improving gender diversity a priority. She knew it had to start from the top, so she and her team publicly emphasized the importance of hiring women and other underrepresented people. She didn't set a specific target number, but instead focused on the need to fix the process. The results were remarkable. By the next quarter, the share of newly hired women engineers at OpenTable had gone from 14 to 50 percent. 14 to 50 percent in one quarter. I'm just going to repeat that. They then That's averaged. Five oh, not five. Yeah, five oh, yeah. Not 14 to 50, but 14 to 50. They then averaged between 40 and 45 percent for the next four quarters. 
When I asked her what the secret was, she said, I was frankly surprised by the speed. But it's like any other business problem. You put effort towards something, you measure it, you get results. Use the same skills you employ to solve other business issues that are priorities, and you'll improve the diversity of your hiring too. Here are more details about how Krista and her team improved their recruiting to hire more diverse teams. They changed their approach to job descriptions. Often, homogeneity in the workplace culture starts with the way a position is described, e.g., using words like killer and aggressive that might read as though the company is seeking men, not women. OpenTable started using Textio Hire, a software program that helps recruiters write job postings free of unconscious or implicit bias. The second thing, they filtered personally identifying information out of resumes. They used Canvas, a product that helped anonymize slash redact gender identifying information on resumes. They cast a wider net. Sources had to identify at least two women candidates for every job opening. This was important because research shows that when there's only one underrepresented candidate, the chance the person will be hired is statistically tiny because the person becomes the quote-unquote diversity candidate instead of simply being the qualified candidate. The term diversity candidate often triggers an unconscious bias. Many people who are overrepresented here instead less qualified candidate. This assumption is not fair to the candidate and will harm your ability to hire the most qualified person. They included women on hiring panels. In an organization that was mostly men, this put a lot of burden on a small number of women to spend more time interviewing. Managers had to be aware of this and accommodate it. Krista would also offer her services to cement key hires as a sign of importance of closing highly qualified underrepresented candidates. They monitored the numbers. The recruiting team measured and reported their performance on hiring women every quarter. Measuring the growth in women hires quarter over quarter was more revealing about progress being made than measuring the company's gender diversity overall. Last but not least, they made sure everyone got the message. Krista and her leadership team spent a lot of time talking about improving diversity. The whole company needed to understand this was an important strategic effort. The leaders were focusing on improving diversity and inclusion in their hiring for two reasons. First, because it was important to have an employee base that mirrored their customer base. Women make more reservations at restaurants than men do. Second, because diverse teams have quantifiably higher productivity, innovation, and outcomes relative to homogeneous teams. All right, I'll stop there. So Krista, how do you feel reading this after several years after we we uh, we worked on this together? You know, I honestly, I, I feel proud. I mean, you know, you, you sit there sometimes and you're in the midst of a problem. And, you know, sometimes my goal is just do the next right best thing that's in front of you. But what I inherently understood, but then have since now summarized, which is you don't rise to the level of your goals, you sink to the level of your systems, James Clear, yeah. Tom Habits, right? <laughs> and so what I was effectively doing here was changing the underlying system because it doesn't matter how ambitious you are, how much you would love to have more diversity. If you have a broken system, you will get broken results. And while I didn't have the succinctness of truly understanding that until later, <laughs> but that's functionally what I was doing. And I think this is the, the message that people need to really 
come at over and over and over again. Look at the systems and structure. Like when we had Me Too and Time's Up, many of those bad actors, yes, they were bad individuals, but they were absolutely supported by a system that perpetuated and and you know kind of created that thing over and over again. So I'm I'm so, sort of obsessed with systems and structures now because we can try all we want, we can beat our head against the wall, but if you've got a bad system, good luck, you're not going to actually make a whole lot of progress. Yeah, that's so, so true. true. So yeah. true. I just can I, I, yeah. I want to fine point. I just want to highlight the the last point. Um not because um not because it spoke to me personally, but it's one of the ones that I think people might skip because they don't realize how hard it is, even though it sounds so simple. So getting the word out, getting the message out and repeatedly doing so, um, I was reading this book that was saying that if you don't do that, then individuals in the company have this default feeling like, oh, are we still doing that? Yeah. Because they're because because they, they hear all these messages, they hear the synergy and the the complexity and all these buzzwords and terms and even the deflated or empty promises about DE and I or diversity or being able to change the workplace. And they hear it and it just falls out of their ear because they've heard it before or they've heard it once and it doesn't feel as if there's meat behind it. So saying it repeatedly really reinforces of how important it is and that, yes, we are still doing this and this is something we do. And so I just wanted to make sure I point that out because if if it's not emphasized, I know a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I got the word out. I'd send an email, a Slack message, blah, blah, blah. But the, the repeated nature and to make sure that it is a cornerstone of what you're presenting and doing it in a forum that shows like the level of importance to the whole com- the company is is something that is is easily overlooked. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people have said, oh, whew, there's the pandemic. Now I don't have to worry about my diversity mm. anymore. Right. I <laughs> that mean, is the truth. And, and exactly. But but people have, have definitely, if you look at just even shareholder proposals within the ESG environment, it's, it's, it's declined. And so it's, is this important anymore? But if you had set up a system and a structure that people followed, it can perpetuate without Yes, you still, as the leader, need to declare that these things are important, but you've got backup and yeah. you've got a way of institutionalizing these things as opposed to making it this, you know, to your point, this quarter's flavor of the, you know, the quarter, the, you know, this is what we're focused on now, but it's not what we're always focused on. Yeah. And I think it's also really interesting, especially in light of the of the SCOTUS ruling, that you you know, you have to, as a business leader, you have to measure what matters, right? And and the SCOTUS ruling does not mean you cannot measure. I mean, businesses, th- that would be very anti-capitalist, right? But businesses, businesses have to be able to measure, to look for signals that something is going wrong. And the signal that something is going wrong is if all your candidates are that you're that you're interviewing are are look the same you know and it, that's a sure sign that something's broken and you have to be able to do that in order to run a business i would argue in order well, to and that's why a I, system right and, and that's why i looked at also measure what you brought in this quarter yeah because it's easy for companies to just raise their hands up and go, yeah, but it's hard. And look at, you know, we've got, you know, especially if you're a big company, we've got 30,000 people with the company. I'm not going to change that company 
in the next quarter. No, you're not, but you change who you brought in that quarter. So like and I would say, like, just like you're talking about revenue and profit and EBITDA add, you know, what was the complexion of the people you brought in this past quarter? And and we and I put that into the boards that I sit on. So who who did we hire? Who did we lose? Are we losing a lot of female candidates or underrepresented minorities? What's happening inside the company? Why are we losing those people? Let's evidence the change so that we can be at the center of where that system may be failing. Yeah. Yeah. And we focused on on gender when we wrote this. Uh, and so so what are your what is your advice to leaders who are focused on uh, not only gender, but also representation more broadly, bring, making sure that that they have uh, racial diversity on their teams? Yeah. And, and by the way, when I was at OpenTable, we were based in San Francisco. So mm-hmm. if I was looking for African-American representation in San Francisco, it's just, it's hard quantifiably. Well, there's if, some problems you know, in California. with the- Yeah. So, so then it says, okay, well, do you have to be in San Francisco? And I think yeah. one of the beautiful things that the pandemic has brought about is, is, you know, we're a remote first culture and go to where people are, you know, yeah. if, if you can find a great, you know, group of people like, Go, you know, recruit in Atlanta or Detroit and you can and because you can have those folks be there, you don't have to move them to San Francisco, which, by the way, they might not feel like they belong in that city because the representation is so poor. Or you could, you know, I mean, you yes, you can ask people to move. But I was told by a few folks who were like, you might not want to move to San Francisco and therefore you're not going to. But but then you have to say, like, why is this a business problem worth solving? And it's just, you just got to keep going back to the data. Like I always try to appeal to the greedy side of people. Like at the end of the day, it's like, this is good for business. I, I want to be super clear that this is a problem. Like we just know this over and over and over again, that these problems. So I think, again, you gotta, you, you've got to go. I mean, we, we had to fish in different pools of talent when we looked for women and same with underrepresented minorities. You've got to go into different pools of talent. You've got to also make sure that those, you know, you've got representation on your own company. Like if yeah. nobody in the company looks the way this person looks or comes from the same background, they're not going to feel like they belong once they get there. It's one thing to get them in the door, but it's another thing to get somebody feeling like they belong once they're there. Because once you belong, you get to produce your best work. I mean, this yeah. is the other secret that people don't realize, but for a huge percentage of my career, because I was a, a woman in a very male-dominated environment, I never felt like I belong. And the amount of time, effort, and energy and performative action that I went through just to prove that I was just another guy was exhausting. And instead of spending time doing my job, I spent time proving to the world that I was also a man. Yeah. And I just didn't produce as, I think I was less, you know, it was harder. And I just, I looked at my own career and how much time and effort I spent not delivering on the job. I spent a lot of time showing. So I just think people, if they showed up as themselves could actually deliver more. So again, back to the greedy nature of the corporation, <laughs> you actually get the better and more result out of a person if they don't have to show up and be performative and they feel like they belong and they feel like their contribution is additive at the end of the day. Yeah. And I, I would say that, that thank you for being willing to admit that. Because one of the, th- when I was writing Just Work, there was a moment where I said, I was writing about an experience I had also in finance that was really tough. 
And I remember when I was when I was talking to someone about what was going on, they're like, well, you better prove that you're performing at your best, you know? And I'm like, how could I, like, I've been groped, I'm underpaid, I'm dis like, how could I possibly do my best work under the <laughs> circumstances? And yet it's really hard to admit. So thank you for, uh, for bringing, like, just being, being well, open. I think it's, it's once you get to, I mean, I don't, I don't put anything against somebody who's playing the rules of the game as they're presented to them. Like you got to play the game that's on the field to some degree. And I'm embarrassed, honestly, by what I expected other women to do because I was doing it. I was sacrificing my soul on a daily basis just to be in a position to, to, to be able to do that. And so I would just say that I then got into a position of leadership and said, what the heck am I doing? I don't need to do this anymore. Yeah. I get to make the rules. I get to decide. And therefore, I don't I don't want to do this anymore. And I think once you get to that position of leadership, I always look at it and say, it's not that you can change rules of the game. You have to. Like It is now my duty and obligation as somebody in a privileged position of power to change how the rules work because I suffered through a bad set of rules in order to get to that position of power to now change the rules. Absolutely. I, I really admire that, that you we are able to recognize the difference between things that you are doing as opposed to things that have to be done. I think a lot of people fall back on either what they're taught or what they're led to be believe that this is the default or this is the right way of doing things. Um, I think our, our last guest also talked about that, about some of the bullying that are systematized. And it, it's, it's very interesting that I, th I think one of the, the first things that you did was to adjust the job descriptions because sometimes it's not neutral in terms of people feeling like um, that they're not worthy for applying for a job. Sometimes these aggressive language or the languages that doesn't align to a wider group of people, it feels like it is harmful and it prevents people from coming in. And just reduce, reducing barriers and just taking down all these obstacles like hiring remotely or not forcing someone to have a, a, a college degree for certain roles and stuff like that, how those themselves also allow the wider gates to let people in, uh, as well as the proactive work that you do about seeking out doing these active measuring. And I was curious about one of the things that were listed, um, the, the the cast a wider net. Is is that akin or is this similar to the Rooney rule? Um, and is that, that how you uh, learned about making sure that you have two candidates uh, that were gender diverse rather than uh, the one that would be the diversity hire. How did you come to that realization? Um, did you learn from that on your own with trial and error? Uh, I'm really curious about that process. Uh, I must I, be, sorry, but I'm going to jump in. Can you explain to folks who may not know what the Rooney rule is, what the Rooney rule is? Um, I know it from football um, in terms of when they were um, they're hiring for a position to make sure that there's at least one diverse candidate. Um, and um, it, it is one that's, that's kind of like holds the whole process up and just making sure that people have an open chance, at least in the, the running, to, to be able to have a position. And I know there's been some lawsuits around it, so it's a little bit controversial because some people feel that in order to move forward, they just throw someone in that they know they're not going to hire. 
just to say that they um, successfully can check that box in terms of moving forward. Um, but it is a concept there just in, in terms of increasing diversity. And, and I'm from Pittsburgh. So the Roonies are uh, uh, the Pittsburgh Steeler team. Uh, and actually, you know, you could look at the, while the Rooney rule was not perfect, for sure, in the sense that it was saying, hey, let's get at least a diverse candidate in the mix. Of course, any system can be, you know, potentially weaponized. You could argue that the Steelers have been more successful than a lot of other teams throughout their tenure because of how they've approached management. Where I learned about it was actually, uh, it was actually an HBR article uh, that went and did a bunch of data analysis and observed that if you had a single candidate, they then got this moniker of diversity candidate. And it just made so much sense. I think the data was something like, if you just add one more into the mix, so you have at least two diverse candidates instead of the one, and now you've removed this diversity candidate idea, your odds of hiring a diverse candidate went up like 80%. It was not a 5% or 10% improvement. It was a market improvement in what the outcome was. And I think it just gets to, to what was written in, in Kim's book, which is, yeah, that, that the, you know, that, that this person now gets a different lens placed on them versus, Hey, here's a bunch of candidates. They're all awesome. Let's go pick the best one. Uh, and, and I think in order to have that in the mix, it, it really just changed the dynamics. And it was a, the minute I read it though, it was just a, of course, it just made so much sense because you would hear about that. Oh yeah, let's throw a woman in there. So it looks like we're trying. Oh, great. That's not what anybody needs. And she didn't need to go on that interview. She wasn't going to get anyway. So let's, it's kinder in both directions. If we can, if we can change the system around it. Love it. I that's think amazing. that's yeah. true. Go ahead, Wesley. Oh, I was going to say that, that uh, I am really interested about, if you have any other stories that you could share from your history um, that really can highlight some of the challenges you mentioned earlier in your introduction about not belonging and uh, the struggles you had, especially being a multi-hyphenate in terms of industry and flexibility. And um, I'm sure that you're a wealth of, of interesting uh, anecdotes. And I would love to hear one if you have one to share. Well, I mean, I'd love to take on maybe imposter syndrome. Um, uh, I was, you know, first at the at the line, I was like, oh, well, imposter syndrome. I definitely have that. <laughs> and I remember I was on a panel and one of my friends was like, she's like, what a load of crap. She's like, first of all, we don't let women do anything that they are not overly qualified for. So the idea that you would kind of have that feeling is just, it's as a woman, by the way, you're not getting hired for something that you're not overly qualified for to begin with. So let's throw that to the side. But then of course, you know, we've now seen a bunch of the research on imposter syndrome and how it, it you know, we've have women and minorities do overly identify with the moniker of it. And one of the things back to the systems thing, I started to think about well, what is that feeling that you get when you're like, I'm not good enough? And what I've come to observe with it is it's the company, it's society, it's the world saying, be uncomfortable. You're in a space, you don't belong, and we don't really want you here. And that feeling of discomfort is something I want you to feel because that will keep you at your station. And so the thing that I, I, I like to do is I like to flip 
these things. It's like, you know, the idea of feeling stress. Well, feeling stress is great because if it can give me more energy and help me compete at a higher level, then I'm looking at that stress as, oh, great, you're here to harness my resources and my energies to go tackle this thing. I look at that feeling of imposter and go, oh, this means I am doing the thing that rises above my station and I've completely flipped. And so when you have that moment where you go, I do feel that little bit of discomfort. What is that? Oh, I'm pushing boundaries. I'm I'm breaking ground in a place that maybe I didn't historically belong, but guess what I do now? And I want people to to just get comfort with that discomfort. Find comfort in the uncomfortable, as my yoga teacher would say. How do you how do you go in and and start to feel those things? And I think people need to to acknowledge that this stuff it is hard and you're going to feel that. And that's a good thing. Like it's working. Like the medicine is working because you're actually pushing the envelope in a way that you otherwise would have. Yeah. I think that's next time I feel that way. I'm going to, I'm going to try to think instead, you know, I'm being asked to be twice as good as anyone else in the room. Cause that's what's really happening with imposter syndrome. Or people are going to, they, 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 you're trying to do something that you're not normally doing. And why do they call it a growth edge? Because we all want to grow. We, I'm a seeker by nature. I want to do and experience and accomplish things that I have never done or have not been done. And to do that, you're going to get a little this, you know, if you want to stay comfortable, you can stay in the same spot. But anytime you're achieving, you're going to, you're going to start feeling that and just say, yeah, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. When my, when my son was six, uh, he started, learning how to ride the skateboard and of course he started with the his maybe his knees and just using his hands to push him both on both sides to kind of scoot across the ground then he kind of got up and then he felt like the wiggle you know the lean of the skateboard Mm -hmm. and then he got really uncomfortable and then went on a slight incline to the point where it was able to go by itself just using gravity and, or decline, sorry, not incline. And then he got a little speed and he would just hop off because it felt uncomfortable. And then I had to have the same talk with him about, you know, that, that bit of uncomfortableness is where you're at your edges. The edges of discomfort is also the edge of where you have growth. And you have to keep pushing against that in order to figure out where you actually can and cannot go. Because your brain will try to tell you this is not a good place to be way before you're at that point. It's almost when you're holding your breath and you're underwater and you're like, I'm out of breath, but then you have enough to get up to the surface. And so when he found that, I said, you feel that? He said, yes, I was holding his hands while he was standing up. I said, you feel that? Okay, now be comfortable with that. Learn to live with that. And then we went. And then that's when he started like really feeling exhilarated from being on a skateboard. And that is exactly the kind of the feeling that I, I hope people can learn to, to kind of like ride that wave. If you're like public speaking, I guess give some of that same kind of adrenaline rush when you're in front of a crowd and your heart starts pumping to like harness that, like you said, just like take it and kind of use it as a ride and know that you're at the outskirts of growth. And if you can just hang on there to the end, then it'll be less scary next time. And actually something that can fuel you. I love that. And I think it's a, it's a great metaphor for where we are as a society. We're at this moment that is uncomfortable. Uh, and we're beginning to learn to be truly more inclusive and, and there, and that's uncomfortable and it's causing some people 
to jump off the skateboard. <laughs> and so let's figure out what we can do to hold folks' hand and keep them on the skateboard so they can learn how to do well, it. Well, and, and moreover, you're going to fall sometimes. Yes. You know that <laughs> you're, you're like, and I'm like, fine, you fell. Okay. You know, like hopefully you've got some protective equipment on, you've got some things on the edges. That's cool. What you don't want to do is the one gripping on the side of the skateboard park and never trying and never letting, like knowing that falling is part of the pro process. Once you're on your ass, the only place to go is up. <laughs> yeah. and so I, you know, I've just made the process of falling like, and maybe it's because I did sports in college or whatever. So you just, you lose a lot. You know, my, there's that famous yeah. video of Michael Jordan and all the shots he missed and all the games he lost and all the championships and all the last minute things he lost. And for some reason, we don't remember that with him because he won a lot too. But in order yeah. to get there, you've got to just get really comfortable and build the muscle memory for falling and failing and getting back up. But you at least, you let go of the edge of the skateboard. And that's, that moment of being stuck is the worst of them all. It's, you know, let it, preventing the fall is actually the most dangerous place to be. And I spent, a, I had one job where, it was a bad, it was a bad fit and a bad job for all sorts of reasons. And because I had an internal narrative of you've got to be successful, you're always successful. You always figure it out that I was preventing the fall. And it was the worst professional year of my life by a wide margin. And the reality is I shouldn't have presented, but I should just have let go, let the fall happen. And then you're on to the next thing. But as long as you prevent the fall, you're stuck. And that's a, that's a very, uh, it's a terrible place to be because now you, you there's there's no growth in stock. Yeah, yeah. You, you you're you're th that is when we're when we quit growing and quit learning. That's when we start dying. Indeed, indeed. Well, let's find a like more, let's find a more optimistic way to end <laughs> to, to end this conversation, Krista. I really enjoy always love talking with you uh and uh and thrilled that you and Wesley got a chance to to meet and uh that we could have this conversation absolutely i, I we're overdue for a dog walk uh, yeah I'm ready <laughs> uh lots of deep insights and I just want to thank you again for you know radical candor. I invoke it at least weekly maybe maybe it's more than that um and I still think it's the best piece of, of business poetry I've seen. <laughs> Thank Agreed. you. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, this is all for Kim. We're, this is going to make Kim super embarrassed. So let's keep saying really nice <laughs> things about her. <laughs> I'm blushing. You can't see yes, it. Yes, yes. And if you would like to hear more from Kim and people who might have some embarrassing stories from Kim. Um, and Wesley. Please, it, well, there are none. Um, <laughs> please send us a message at hello at justworktogether.com and we would like to hear your stories um, anonymous or if you want to tell us them in full detail we would love those as well if you'd like to be on the show please send your request there as well thanks so much everybody take care take care bye thank you